thanks for coming, and I wanted to thank Allison for making the trip down from Brooklyn to be with us today, as well as her dealer, Derek Eller, who's here with her. And um, just a little aside before we talk about this piece specifically, I just wanted to mention that um, I've known Allison for many years now and have been quite interested in her work. And um, it's just it, it's just a really nice actualization of something that's, I think, been building over a number of years to be able to finally bring a work of hers into the Hirshhorn collection. So we're really thrilled to have it. It's the first work we have of Allison's in the collection, and we acquired it through a group um, that's been really focusing on work by you know, so-called emerging artists or um, artists who are er in the early stages of their career. And it's been a, a very active program and we're really excited about it. And Allison, I think, is um, one of our favorite pieces that we've brought in in the last year and a half through that group. So um, I'm just gonna pose a few questions to Allison and then let her do the majority of the talking because that's who you want to hear from. But I think the first thing you probably noticed about Radiant is the way that it um, inhabits space and really is a work that has an exploration of, of color and light and perception and even time because Allison's work is often something that requires a kind of movement through space and time in order to sort of fully understand the work. It's not the kind of work that has a single perspective where you stand in front of it and an image is revealed to you. So if, if, if there's anyone here who hasn't done this, when we're finished with the talk, be sure to really walk past Allison's piece and you'll notice how much the colors change and that you're really your understanding of the work and your experience of it really shifts. So I just thought that was a good place to start for Allison to address specifically in this work how those ideas are functioning, but more largely how it's operated in, her, in pretty much all of her work. Um, yeah, I think uh, basically the idea of um, bringing time in and experience is really important to me. Um, I've been disappointed in certain works of art when I look at them and I see them and I sort of understand them all at once. And then I feel like I can't go back and look again. So I guess I wanted to have in my work something that was a, an experience that could kind of like keep giving you new information over a period of, you know, hopefully your whole life. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, good works of art, that's, that's really what they do in, in any case. Um, and this piece, as well as a lot of other work I've done, um, responds to light. Um, in a gallery situation, of course, there's always a certain, you know, controlled light setting. But um, <clears throat> a lot of the work, when it's seen and next to daylight, it'll change according to the time of day or whatever. And even this one changes according to your position and according to the people who are around it. And um, so it constantly is giving that sort of new information. And the other thing that's sort of different about this piece is for a long time I've eliminated color from my work. This is sort of off the topic, but <laughs> uh, I just was focusing in on reflection, transparency, refraction, but I wanted to introduce color in a way uh, that would be natural to the work, that wouldn't be um, like applying color. And what I thought was interesting about this dichroic film is that it's actually the film is clear. Like everything there is, is clear. Just so weird. I can't even believe it myself. Like, really? <laughs> but it's clear. Yeah. So the dichroic film basically filters uh, the wavelengths of light and lets some through and not others, depending on your angle. So it's like these dichroic, it's D I C H R O I C. 
material that's put on the surface. These right. are aluminum structures right. that Allison has then put this diacrylic film over. Acrylic and then the, the yeah. Acrylic and then. Yeah. So, and the dichroic film, is a, it started as a scientific application that's used to split light for very, I don't even know, I don't remember, but um, whatever they need it for. And, and anyhow, so the reason that I use it is because it's, it's clear and you're seeing the color because you're seeing certain wavelengths taken away from the other, from white, from all the different wavelengths. So you're seeing it depending on your own position. I think you're probably getting that idea. <laughs> yeah, right now. So, the person's activity is sort of inherent in the viewing of the work. Um, anyway, does that answer that? Yeah, so I, the I question think the anymore. other thing that happens that you'll notice as you view the work is that you actually see yourself as well. Oh, so you tricky. see all these colors yeah. shifting, but you also realize that it's a reflective surface. So there's, there's an interesting way in which it's absorbing and sort of refracting light simultaneously. And this is something Allison has done in previous works as well. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit. I mean, I think it, it, it's on the same topic in the sense of you know, invoking the viewer in a very deliberate way. But um, it's not only that you can't view the work from a single perspective, it's that that realization of seeing yourself in the work um, mm. sort of alters your perception of your relationship to it. And I think mm. um, we'll talk for a minute about some of the people who might be precursors or, or artists of earlier generations that Allison's thought about. But one person that comes to mind immediately for me in that regard is somebody like Larry Bell. Who we, who we have in this collection as well. So that, that quality of seeing yourself in an artwork, um, I always find to be a really kind of intimate, it, it sort of offers a more intimate relationship to the piece. And right. does that, does that Yeah, no, I mean, I thought of like Dan Graham all of a sudden, uh -huh. like yeah. that curve thing. Um, yeah, I'm not, I guess it's really this kind of thing that I had about bringing the viewer in. Um, I really was interested in having people be engaged in my work uh, in a way that was almost kind of welcoming, which is something sort of anti-art world. <laughs> but I was interested in that. Um, you know, I was interested in that you would, you would be drawn in and then you would then have the, the time to experience things on whatever level you could. So somebody just coming in could experience it on one level, somebody who's an art world aficionado can experience it on another level. Um, but I think the other thing about this, like seeing yourself and breaking up of space and all of that is really you know, important to me in terms of perception and seeing the world around you and how do you see, how do we, how are eyes constructed so that we see things and in the way that we see them. And, and once we see them broken up and distorted and and changed, I mean, to me, it just makes me question, you know, what if, what if that was the way it was always? What if we were constantly surrounded by, like, this environment of, of broken up mirrors? That would become normal to us, and that would be, like, normality, and this would be strange. <laughs> so I'm interested in that kind of idea of, like, you know, how, is, how do we build up an idea about the world around us based on vision? Um, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about some of the, the artists that you would connect right. your work with. Um, yeah. Allison and I have talked about the obvious connection to minimalist sculpture, um, particularly American practitioners from earlier generations, the 60s and 70s, people like Donald Judd, Larry Bell, Saul LeWitt. But I think that, you know, while Allison's clearly aware of those artists and, and invokes some of their languages in terms of repetition, um, uh, sort of real interest in, in surface and production. 
I find that her work has a bit more of a kind of hand quality to it. Something where, although these are quite pristine, you can sort of imagine that she herself has built these. Whereas with Donald Judd, um, clearly, you know, these are mass produced and very deliberately so on his part. So I thought maybe Alison could talk a little bit about your thoughts about those artists and, and ways in which you've tried to both, you know, kind of uh, quote them in some way, but also do something different. Right. Um, my relationship to those artists has been really a difficult one because <laughs> when I was growing, or not growing up, but when I was an art student, um, they were like the, sort of the grand men of the art world. And so I was really against them, actually, and uh, <laughs> really couldn't look at that work for a long time or, or understand it for a long time for what it was. Um, so for a long time, I was actually working against that work. <laughs> and then suddenly I found myself working in that realm. And I was like, what's going on? I'm becoming like a Donald Judd or something. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I have some similar interests in that um, I'm interested in, depending on the thing I do, but I find myself more and more interested in not having a record of my hand so much in the work. Like, I'm not that interested in it being like, oh, there's the brushstroke of Allison Schatz. Um, so I like sort of a certain an anonymity. Um, but, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the way that I got to this minimalism or found myself, you know, I don't consider myself a minimalist by any means. Um, in fact, like, I think of myself as almost like a maximalist because I, uh, yeah, it's sort of like everything should just be more, more, more. Like I sort of like this idea of minimalism, but then like multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And, and this is, you know, relatively uh, reasonably sized piece. But a lot of my work is, is very kind of a lot. And um, I like the idea of almost like a, what's the word for that? Like a, a yeah, the, like, uh, I can't think of the word. but. This feeling that you get by being sort of surrounded by so much, it's almost a psychedelic experience or something. Um, but anyway, to get back to how I got to minimalism, I am very, very interested in nature, structure of nature, and that's always been in my work from the very beginning. And I found myself looking at these kind of microscopic sculptures, structures like molecules and whatever, and these certain shapes like hexagons, and um, finding myself then using these kind of uh, geometric shapes, but it was based in nature, so it wasn't that I was interested in the cube, it was that I was interested in this natural uh, structure that happened to be a hexagon or whatever. So that's sort of how I arrived at that place. Um, and, because those uh, structures are often uh, repetitive, right? Right, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a way for you to get a form and then be able to Right, right, and it's a form that's interesting to me. I mean, like, I would find it difficult to work with a cube, and I don't know how, actually, Donald Judd decided on the cube or, or the box or whatever, or his, his, the sizes of the things he made, but, um, oh, I was just going to say something. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, oh, what happened was, it's hard sometimes to remember the train of, thought, but I, I was interested in space. I'm still interested in space and string theory and all of that stuff. And then that led me to topology, which is the study of form. And it's kind of a, um, an offshoot of geometry. So then I got interested in geometry as well. So then the, these kind of things, like the study of geometry, I think I feel like I'm getting really off track no, here. But, but uh, 
that's how I got to it. To, to, <laughs> for everyone to know that you actually do um, do some research into oh, certain yeah. kinds of science and mathematics, and maybe you could talk about how what kind of how large a role that plays. Like, how much reading yeah. do you do, and and how important do you think it is? I mean, I think, and of course, it's always hard when you're talking about an artist's whole practice to be looking at one work because. Um, right. You know, in many ways, this work is emblematic of a lot of Allison's concerns, but in other ways, I find it to be actually slightly different than yeah. earlier work, so to speak, um, that maybe has a little bit more of a Baroque quality to it, this kind mm -hmm. of abundance you were referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. And if, if anybody saw the Guggenheim's um, Shape of Space collection show last year, there was a huge um, curved wall of these recta, what do you call those? Uh, Fresno. <laughs> So <laughs> being in front of an audience, Fresnel lenses, Fresnel, they're plastic. Plastic sheets that, there was a piece by Allison, in fact, they named the show after her piece, um, which uh, really just refracted the space and the light around it in this very, uh, almost overwhelming sense, and it was mm. gorgeous. Like in the light show? No, no, at the, at the Guggenheim Museum, I'm talking oh, about a different... I of the light show, yeah. right upstairs with a disc and the reflection. Yeah, that was Oliver Eliasson, and, and yes. Oh, that's, yeah, I saw that piece when I was last year. there, too. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the science, I think that in some of that repetition and the way, just the formal qualities of the work, yeah. you, you kind of, as a viewer, I think, have a sense that there's, you know, certain sort of equations or ideas in, in the work, but how, well, how much do you study and how much do you think it's important for people to know about it? Um, well, first, I just want to say in terms of Baroque, it's interesting that you say that, and a few people have said that, and one of my favorite uh, musicians is Bach, and I feel like there's something in Bach, or I don't feel, I mean, it's pretty obvious we all know Bach, but <laughs> there's a structure, and then there's a sort of grand, you know, putting together of that structure, which I really love and relate to. Um, and then the question you just is asked there, me. Just getting back to the um, sciences that you're Oh, science, at, right. Because I'm wondering yeah. also if there's, if, you know, one of the aspects of the scientific theories you're interested in may be that the, the possibility of chaos within a structure, or the, yeah, the relationship yeah. between structure and chaos. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, just in terms of, anyway, how much research I do and what I do. So what I uh, normally do is I try to read about things. Well, I've started to read about things that I know might inspire me. And, you know, it's actually from the very beginning when I was in school, I used to go to the medical school and look in the books there. Um, the anatomical atlases and things like that. So it sort of started then, and then I've just kind of, you know, continued researching different aspects of things that um, seem like they would be interesting to me and followed that path, and that sort of led me to string theory and, um, and, and topology, like I was saying, which I found, I found topology to be really interesting because it is the study of form and how one form can kind of become another form or is the same form. Um, but, and I think all that, for me, it's really it's important in the work as a jumping-off point, but I don't find you know I don't think my work is about string theory. It's a theory of what makes up like the sort of basic particles of the universe. So you know they keep going down to like you know quarks and muons and whatever. So then below that, they think maybe strings, these little strings of energy, are uh, what comprise the universe, and that particles are created by these strings, by maybe the way they vibrate creates this. It's a whole, you know, it's very complicated, but that's part of it. But, uh, but what's interesting to me about string theory are some of the things are like the different dimensions of space. They think there's more than three. There may be 11 dimensions of space. 
And that was what, you know, instigated my piece, The Shape of Space, was to try to experience that idea of 11 dimensions of space, even though that's very hard to do, and maybe impossible, well, probably is impossible to do. Um, and I keep losing my track, but yeah, oh, what I was gonna say is just that, um, I think that though it's, it's probably interesting for people to know that that's what I research, I don't know that they have to know it when they see the piece. And, it can, and I don't want it to direct the viewing too much because I'm also interested in uh, people having their own experience and interpretation. And um, you know, I, I really love it when people come up to me and say, well, it reminds me of you know, something else. And, and to me, that can be really informative, actually. Yeah. So Allison also has um, a very active practice with two-dimensional work. So I thought um, maybe you could talk about the two-dimensional work you make and the relationship between that and the sculpture. Mm -hmm. Well, I started as a painter, and I went to school for painting. Both my undergraduate and graduate degrees were in painting. And I'm really not sure why. <laughs> so I look back, I think, why didn't I do sculpture? I mean, I was doing sculpture then. But I just thought, I think I thought when I was really young that to be an artist that you were a painter and that's just like how it was. So uh, I was a painter and I was never really satisfied with that, the constrictions of the rectangle and, and flat dimensions. Um, and even though there are ways to get around that, I still wasn't that interested in those ways. Um, so I started to just, my work started to sort of slowly come off the wall and um, but yet, I'm really somehow still interested in digital work because I feel like it's, it's my, my two-dimensional work is mostly digital and sort of photographic. So somehow that relates to the 3D world to me more than a painting. It has a realness to it that I like. Um, and I, I also was very interested uh, in kind of blending the two. At the time when I was just sort of coming up, there was real divisions between the different worlds, between uh, painting and sculpture and photography. There was never any blending. <laughs> now it's changed a lot, but I think that's because of our generation. We were unsatisfied with that. <clears throat> and so I wanted to find ways to, um, to blend those divisions. And so a lot of my, like I don't know whether this particular work, but some of my sculptures end up in my photographs and they become totally transformed and, and parts of a bigger construction. But um, I was interested in kind of like going back and forth between photography, sculpture, painting, blah, blah, blah. You know, so just kind of having a, a smoother transition. Can you just transition. describe for everyone what, like a The photographs. Yeah. The, uh, I do, do these digital images that are, I take images of my sculpture. Some sculptures are, are full sculptures that I've made. Some are pieces that I just make for the photographs that are little almost mock-ups. And then I take pictures in the world, like almost wherever I go, I sort of have my camera and I'm ready to take a picture of some weird structure that I find, and that can end up in there. And then they become these kind of big, I think kind of Baroque actually, <laughs> structures that are very intricate. And um, they're almost like a sort of life form of their own. And uh, they, they have a kind of globalized thing to them, I realize, because they've got like parts from, you know, Europe, they've got parts from Florida, they've got parts from New York, you know, and they're all in the same universe. And the latest ones are, um, I really think of as almost like sort of matter being created. Uh, and they're again, you know, part of the thing in those that's important to me and similar to the sculpture is this idea that um, 
there's a lot of detail in them. So where in those, there's not an aspect of time that can come in. There is the aspect of time in terms of the level of detail so that you can constantly go back to those. And a lot of people have told me that they do. And they constantly are seeing new things because it's this kind of miniaturized you know, world but that, that makes up a macro but has all this stuff in there. So. Well, I see it as. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see it as that, and as, as I was saying before, that's something that can change, so that now we're all in front of it, and it's going to look a certain way. But then, if there's just one person here, it's going to look completely different. And, yeah. And and light again would change that surface. Now the placement where this came from. Exactly as we see it now, or do you alter that according to the environment? And do you care? I mean, is it up to you, or is the museum or the owners to where you? I do care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did imagine it as a piece that could shrink and expand depending on its space. Um, and the placement was really kind of about rhythm. I was suddenly got interested in this idea of a kind of rhythm between the different. bars <laughs> and uh, yeah and I, I started to see this almost as like I, I think I've said this maybe to you before but um, almost like a kind of piano for some reason it reminds me of a piano and yeah and I think of it almost like the keys are being pushed in and out and light is being almost like played on it or something um, so that's how I was yeah what we did was we because when Allison showed this in New York it was on a Longer wall. Longer, yeah. Longer wall. So when we were going to install it here, we gave her the dimension, the you know, the width of this wall, and then she came up with a template to let us know exactly what the rhythm and the relationship would be between those. So if you know, if I want to install it in two years upstairs on a smaller or long or bigger wall, we'll go back to her and again have her figure out what that rhythm will be, and maybe you know, in a hundred years, we'll have <laughs> yeah, so like, many different templates. That? It'll hopefully work or we'll have a, you know, kind of ownership yeah. over that process a little bit more than oh, now yeah. we would always go to her and, and ask her to That's, let us know. Yeah. But the other thing that came up was that Allison um, had originally designed this piece to just sit on the floor to have this very direct relationship to the architecture. And, you know, for us, because we're a public institution and we have many, many people coming through here, we, we got very concerned yeah, about the possibility of it falling over. And this surface, this film that Allison's described for you is in fact quite uh, fragile in the sense that it, it does scratch easily. And um, so we talked and decided that it was better to, to create this sort of small platform upon which we could install the work and actually really, um, there's kind of elaborate system by which we've adhered these quite securely to, to the wall and to the floor so that they're not gonna go anywhere. Even if you know a three-year-old walks over and, and grabs one, um, it's not going to fall over. So that was no, important. But that was, you know, these are things that are really important to, to talk to the artist about because, of course, they have their own um, ideas about the installation, but also tend to adapt given the context and the, the place and the parameters of that. So, and it looks beautiful. 
It so. does. I like the way it's a, it's actually part of the floor. It's not like a pedestal. Right. I was concerned about a pedestal. I really like the idea of sculpture kind of just existing, you know, without that. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.